Today's episode is a continuation of the series that we're doing about hospital pharmacy. If you guys haven't seen our previous episode, you can check that one out from two weeks ago. But if you have seen it, then today we're going to be talking about how to find your niche in hospital pharmacy, as well as how to be a successful hospital pharmacist, and just talking about the field of oncology as a whole. Welcome everyone to Off The Script. We have another interview with us this week and uh, we have Melissa today. So Melissa Lowe is an oncology pharmacist with seven years of experience at Princess Margaret Hospital. Currently she works primarily in the ambulatory setting, but Melissa has experience in many aspects of hospital pharmacy. She has participated in a variety of educational roles and quality improvement projects. Melissa has also previously owned a community pharmacy and draws on her experience from working in the community to help provide her patients in hospital better care. In her free time, Melissa enjoys walks with her dog Rolo, who you can follow at Rolo underscore adventure underscore pup on Instagram. That's so cute. And yeah. he's a good boy, so. <laughs> <laughs> so how's your week been? Uh, good. Um, obviously working and uh, as you were saying previously, I'm involved with you know education projects, outreach projects in relations to uh, oncology. So I'm actually working with a colleague of mine to finish up a presentation we're going to give next week um, on um, new topics in acute myeloid leukemia. I still have to finish writing a continuing education piece due for the pharmacy practice and business on drug interactions with oral chemotherapy. So I have a lot to do before the end of this week. And But otherwise, it's been a pretty good week, you know, despite the weather and all that. <laughs> Sounds like you're balancing a lot of different things. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess we, after the introduction, obviously you're working at Princess Margaret Hospital, you're working in the ambulatory oncology unit. Did you want to give our listeners like a quick rundown of what you kind of do on a day-to-day -day basis, at least as close to what you do on a day-to-day -day basis? So as Chris says, I my area is primarily ambulatory oncology. Um, people think of it as like the chemo infusion unit, aka the chemo infusion unit or the day unit. Um, so basically, these are patients who are receiving uh, IV treatments uh, on an outpatient basis. And a lot of uh, chemo treatment nowadays are actually administered in the outpatient setting. So this is going to be a trend that you're going to see in the next, you know, forever, to be quite honest. Um, and that's primarily what I do, but actually in the last couple of years, I've become involved with ambulatory, I guess, malignant hematology and allotransplant. So these are patients who have hematologic malignancies such as acute myeloid leukemia, acute uh, lymphoblastic leukemia, APL, myelodysplastic syndrome, you go on. Anything that is cancer in the blood, pretty much um, I've involved with. So I kind of grew a little specialty area in that um, setting. Other than, you know, doing the education outreach, you know, I, I'm the one who preps the chemo, checks it, um, maybe make it, but that's usually left up to our technicians. Um, aside from just checking the chemo, there's a lot of clinical aspects about chemotherapy because it is a cytotoxic agent. We need to ensure that um, blood work is appropriate uh, for funding aspects because um, it's like in terms of drug funding, we have a Cancer Care Ontario agency that will fund ambulatory inpatient IV infusions. So there's a lot of um, things we need to do around ensuring you know appropriate funding, appropriate treatment, um, 
you know, just talking to patients about their treatment is a huge part of what I do. Um, as you know, there's chemo-induced nausea and vomiting, so there's a lot of questions patients might have because there's a lot of medications that are being prescribed for it. Um, and there's a lot of other side effects that um, are, that comes with administering chemotherapy that patients need to be very comfortable in managing and knowing when to actually go to the eMERGE and really be checked out. But, you know, we're trying to push the onus onto the patients to take charge of their care um, through education and outreach. So that's what a lot of what we do for the pharmacist's point of view. Mm -hmm. We have a team of I think like seven to nine pharmacists just in the ambulatory outpatient setting so you can see that it's growing. Um, so yeah, that's what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. We work very closely together in tight quarters, but we're all good camarades. I always joke that I see them more than I see my husband and my dog. So, you know, we've become a very tight-knit, um, close families and people do come and go. So we maintain our relationships as people come and go. Um, from our hospital, uh, pharmacists and patients too. I guess like uh, you touched on how you actually do get to spend a lot of time talking to patients directly. Um, I find that uh, that's a unique aspect of actually working in ambulatory care because the patients you see versus ambulatory versus inpatient, they're generally a bit healthier, right? So like as, as, as healthy as a, an yeah, oncology patient can be. Exactly. Um, can you describe like, I guess, like some differences between inpatient oncology versus ambulatory oncology? Because although we might be familiar with it, I know that our listeners might not be as familiar with even what these terms mean. So I always describe it to students, to patients as, you know, Basically, it's a longitudinal approach in following a patient's, so understanding the entire treatment pathway for patients and help them anticipate issues they might experience a week later to two weeks because we might not see them for another two weeks to a month. So we can't just go day by day how they would as an inpatient, like, you know, deal with the problem as it comes up. We have to anticipate issues they're gonna experience. So usually our ambulatory patients, though there's that misnomer they are healthy, they're actually obviously still dealing with this pretty terrible diagnosis of cancer. They're well enough to be sent home um, and discharged from an inpatient setting, but they still have to manage all of these issues at home pretty much most part by themselves because you know I've always talked to my uh, patients um, when they first come into our treatment unit after they got discharged from hospital saying now you are basically on your own you know I'm here to provide you education and support to help you cope at home while you are undergoing um, cancer treatment and recovering from it so that's really the difference is they're um, they're still ill they're, um, I guess they're healthy enough to be at home, but they still have to understand how to take care of these issues at home. So, you know, that's really the difference for an ambulatory pharmacist. It's interesting the way you're describing it, because I know a lot of our listeners will be pharmacy students or they'll be pharmacists who are practicing in the community. And it almost sounds like you're like a specialized community pharmacist, because it's, it's, not, it's not any stranger than dispensing a medication that's new to a patient and saying, here's the red flags for them. You need to watch out for these things. You might be more susceptible to this, so watch out for this as well. And I'm not going to see you until your next refill. So, you know, if something happens by then, you need to go seek medical help. Do you kind of see that parallel yeah. happening? So I pull a lot of my experience from working in community for a brief period of time, but also seeing these patients very longitudinally and drawing from those experiences. Like, 
I kind of knew this was coming. So rather than you wait to, you know, run into the same wall you did last time, let's plan ahead. So it is, you know, a, like there's a large aspect of my job that is a community pharmacist um, because I mean, I once you leave a hospital, like um, in terms of drug funding, a lot of it is out of the patient's own pocket. Some of the treatment will be covered by, you know, either the hospital or Cancer Care Ontario, or if they're luckily luckily enough to be on ODB to be covered by that, but there's other things they might have to pay out of pocket, over-the-counter medication they might need for heartburn, or for actually something we do a lot of is electrolyte replacement, not covered, you gotta pay for it. So you have to have that mind of a community pharmacist when you're making recommendations to patients. Before we go to the next question, I also wanted to ask you, um, you mentioned you know a lot, a lot of treatment is shifting from the inpatient setting to the outpatient setting. And I know cancer itself is a very scary diagnosis for a lot of patients, but the way that things are progressing, it seems to be more like, I, I dare say like a normalized thing. Like it's, it's okay. Like you have cancer, it's terrible, but it's okay. We can treat it. Do you ever find pushback from the patient that, okay, you're going to be sent home now and here are your meds and this is how you take care of it. And they're like, wait, but I have cancer. Like, shouldn't I be given more attention like this is something that could end my life do you kind of see oh, that yes. dynamic happen a lot and i think like um with a lot of the cancer um diagnosis but also a lot of the new medications that are coming to market and treatments cancer is becoming less of what you say like you know a life-threatening death sentence in the next like if you were going to say in the next year to a chronic long-term illness such as diabetes heart disease. So we're seeing a lot of our patients like living longer, healthier, more fulfilling lives, but also in the background, there's this terrible diagnosis of cancer. So a lot of patients, you know, are overwhelmed when they come to us. And I think part of a pharmacist's job is to reassure them that, you know, as much as cancer is a scary word, it's probably going to be a huge part of your life for a long period of time, especially with more of the chronic cancers that we see. But even some of the more acute things, you know, people are living longer and living with it. So they have to feel empowered to continue living their life. And, you know, a lot of people still go to work. A lot of people still carry on with hobbies, travel, but knowing how to do it appropriately so with this diagnosis. So I guess I tracking back in time, um, before we really dive into the questions about like your day-to-day -day practice in oncology, we want to ask you how you really got to where you are now because you obviously have a long career in, at Princess Margaret of seven years. So how did you get started? And then like, what was your career path like? And, and where do you kind of see it going also in the future? Uh, so I got started, obviously graduated pharmacy school step one, got licensed. I did an ambulatory pharmacy practice residency at Sunnybrook 2011 to 2012. It's been that long. Um, and during my time as an APU student and also during my time as a resident, I, I was fortunate enough to have done rotations in, in pediatric oncology and regular ambulatory oncology. So when it came to deciding what I was going to do in my You're life. An oncology pharmacist. Well, actually, yeah, like oncology was, you know, like was an option. There were other options available, but I'm very happy to have fell into oncology. Um, oncology for a lot of pharmacists and especially a lot of students seems like a very daunting, like very scary specialty area because to be quite honest cancer even though it's a one word it represents a very Everything. heterogeneous type of disease like 
there's so much difference between even the different types of leukemias between different types of solid tumor cancer disease. We wish there was one silver bullet to you know, take them all down, but there isn't. They all act very differently. So a lot of people are very scared to go into a disease area that is not just like, you know, one specific topic area. Um, so that's how I, I was like, I was young, you know, I thought that, you know, um, oncology would be a great place to start because when you're young, you know, you have so much capacity to learn and grow. So I know that, you know, there is a growing need for oncology healthcare practitioners, oncology pharmacists. So I said, hey, why not give it a try? And lo and behold, seven years, seven, eight years, eight years later now, <laughs> I'm like, we're in Time 2020. Flies. Time flies. Um, I'm still doing it and I'm actually growing to love it more and more. In terms of what I currently do, um, in terms of like leukemia or they call it malignant hematology, I kind of fell into it um, three, four years, three years ago um, when an opportunity opened up within our, um, our hospital. And I thought that, you know, I'm actually, because back then, um, leukemia is predominantly treated as an inpatient and thought that I don't really have a lot of experience in this area. I feel comfortable with solid tumors. Heck, why not? You know, give it a try. And and I surprised myself because I actually really, really enjoy this topic area now. Um, doesn't mean this is where I'm going to end up forever, but this is where I am right now. Uh, so I, I was very fortunate at my current workplace at Princess Margaret, where they have a lot of opportunities for interprofessional, interdisciplinary collaborations on education, research, outreach. So I've had so many great opportunities over the last three years to um, expand my edu like my education on the topic and also to help others understand this disease area too. And um, where I see it going, I don't know. I really enjoy doing um, the you know, doing outreach in terms of providing, doing lectures, writing articles on the topic area. Um, I want to work with more pharmacists in our area of, around Ontario, around Canada, and trying to collaborate to find better ways to kind of help our patients. I'm very fortunate to be in, you know, a specialized hospital in a big city where we have all these resources, we have all these experts um, available at our fingertips. Um, the, I think the trick is now is trying to kind of provide the same or similar standard of care throughout the country for all of the patients. Because I hate to say leukemia doesn't discriminate in terms of your zip, I mean, your postal code. Um, it affects everyone everywhere. So how do we, you know, educate my fellow pharmacists over in Thunder Bay or in- Penitentiary you know, Machine. Or Penitentiary <laughs> Machine or elsewhere and kind of give them the tools and just the confidence to be able to treat their patients properly. So we're trying to figure out what the best way of doing that. So clearly you have a very uh, busy schedule and it seems like you have like a lot of collaboration in your practice. Would you say there's like a particular characteristic like collaboration or something like that that made you more successful in your current position in hospital pharmacy? Like is there something that if you were a student looking for a job in hospital oncology or just hospital practice in general, like what characteristic can make you stand out and be more successful in that position? So Chris, since you <laughs> completed your API student with us, and I say you had a pretty good experience from my feedback from others, what do you think made you successful as a student in our 
appy irritation. I tried to pinpoint it on one thing that made like me personally enjoy the rotation more. It was definitely putting myself out there to collaborate with all of the um, interprofessional team. Because like right off the bat, as soon as I started and I heard like about the structure of the ambulatory clinic, how it's not just all patient facing, but you also have to talk with the oncologist, talk with the nurse practitioners that you literally work with day by day. I, I knew that I wanted to make sure I had a good relationship with them because they're the people I'm going to be talking to, make recommendations to, and also getting recommendations from. So I, I want to be on like a good foot, you know, like uh, friends, not just yeah. work colleagues, exactly. So I feel like that helped a lot because then when it came time to make recommendations, I was like really comfortable with everyone. And I knew that when I did make a recommendation, I was actually being listened to and not just like, you know, put off to the side. Well, the reason I guess I brought up collaboration to you earlier was because I felt like that was such a strong point of ambulatory practice and why I felt like I really enjoyed it. It definitely, like, um, when you were there, you, you, you're very smooth in terms of your transition from student to being a trusted member of the team. And from my observation, because I've been teaching students, for, I feel old. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like I've, I've kind of gone through this enough to see different, I'm not comparing people, but, you know, I would say, you know, some people, have more ease like they ease into this student role even a lot easier than others but you know I think what you were successful as a student is that you walked in with a very kind of blank canvas but you weren't some people walk in with a blank canvas but are scared because you know people will look at them and say what do you know you know obviously you know you're new of course you're not going to know anything mm -hmm. I think you know I feel maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you know you feel more comfortable if you were gonna encounter a patient in the community, how to start like kind of assessing them. I'm always saying like the information you learn now may be outdated in a month or two. But <laughs> so you, you kind of know the approach now and you feel less intimidated. Hint hint students, you know, we're not <laughs> expecting that you walk in knowing everything. Trust me, even at my stage I still have a lot to learn. So it's just walking in with a very open mind and being willing to learn and experience new things. Um, talk to different types of people. You know, um, and I think another thing is is um, as a pharmacist or as a student, you know, definitely creating that, building that relationship rapport really goes a long way when it comes to, you know, helping, like helping your practice, but also, you know, helping patients too. I think, well, we've talked about this earlier in the podcast as well, like in relation to, like we did an episode about community pharmacy and like where the job market is. And the end message was basically, you have to take your ego and kind of put it to the side and, and make sure that you understand the reality of what the actual job market looks like because uh, some people go into it with like certain expectations and then when they get these expectations not met then they're like immediately let down so like i kind of almost also went into like the rotation with like no expectations as well <laughs> and i think and i think as you were alluding to it's like walking in with an expectation of what a pharmacist's role is um, I think, you know, I don't consider myself successful where I am, but I feel like I, I enjoy going to work. I feel like I make a lot of differences. And the reason being that is because I don't just have that pharmacist hat. This is what pharmacists do. That's all I care about. You know, make sure the dose is correct. Of course, I will still do that. But I go beyond that and I look at the whole patient experience. And I even uh, talk to, you know, all of our interprofessional discipline, uh, in, I guess our interdisciplinary team and try to get the whole like 
picture of a patient's like health, you know, whether it's mental health, um, you know, issues regarding affording medications, issues afford like, you know, at home, like with drug administration relating to things you don't even think about, like, you know, they have to drive three hours here every single day. Of course, it's going to mess up their administration schedule of their medication. But I think just kind of breaking down those barriers of um, what a pharmacist should just be doing and going beyond that and really kind of getting a bigger picture of, you know, a patient's experience. That's what helps, you know, break down those barriers between you and others and like with patients too. I just wanted to quickly ask you, I know there's a course offered at University of Toronto yeah. for oncology or like continuing education oncology. Do you think that's a good asset to have if you want to make like a career switch or if you want to get more uh, more information about you know how to help patients in the oncology setting with oncology like you said because it's such an like i would call it an advanced field because of how many different therapies there are there's only so much you can teach in one in one semester oh, tell me about for it. a course right <laughs> and a lot of what we were being taught was more like symptom management um basic therapies um i have like after doing that course, I had no idea what any of the cancer drugs were. It's so, okay. <laughs> so, so that's what I'm trying to get from is like, you know, with that knowledge or, yeah. you know, limited knowledge, yeah. right? And that foundation, um, I know that course is offered. Um, do you have any experience or anyone that you know that's gone through that course and they've actually come out knowing a lot So there's more? a couple ways you can kind of um, enter into oncology. First being, you know, um, if you're as a student, uh, you know, you have a fixed curriculum, but then you have choices in your appy rotations. So there are options. And I know at our hospital, we have a, a set of rotations you can choose where you're not just there for duration of the five weeks, you're there for much longer. So you can really kind of get immersed, like an immersive appy rotation, but obviously it's limited in the sense of there's only a few spots. And secondly is, you know, maybe if you decide a um, couple years down the road um, that you wanted to do something in oncology and you've obviously graduated, then um, ways to kind of enter into it is obviously to take that U of T course. Um, it is, as I said, two step. There's like the um, foundational and then there's advanced. I think, you know, obviously we all are working individuals and money is always an issue. <laughs> it, it, I'm not sure the exact price, but I know it's at least a thousand or two thousand. Um, so that could be, you know, a reason why people may not want to do it. But not to say you can't further your education in oncology. So CAFO, um, that uh, conference I alluded to, is actually there's an organization. So they have online modules that are we actually make our students kind of review prior to starting with us because it's it goes through all like the basics and more. <laughs> so it's the best place if you don't have much time or limited resources or budget, but you still wanted to learn, um, log into their website. I, I have to see in terms of availability. It's not an expensive, like it's not as expensive as maybe U of T's program, but it's a good way to start. Um, and Cancer Care Ontario has their drug formulary where they maintain, you know, a pretty diverse product monographs with pretty much everything you need to know as a pharmacist. Um, that's another way. And for those hospital pharmacists who's looking to get uh, even more of an edge <laughs> with um, their current, you know, workplace or just want to, you know, do more because, you know, you have infinite amount of time to do stuff. In the States, they have the board certification process. Yes. 
So I'm not sure what that means for Canadians because I know I don't see that many people with that designation, but I know at least a couple of my colleagues have it. So I'm going to say, safely say maybe in a couple years they may adopt what the Americans are doing. So there's one for oncology, so the board certification on oncology pharmacists. Though the only thing is, is that you do need to have a minimal amount of practice time. Yes. So that might be a barrier, but hey, if you're already practicing and you want another, you know, you want to do more, that's another way to do more. After the break, we talk about how oncology pharmacy differs from regular pharmacy, Melissa's opinions on the CCO cuts, and the intimidation factors surrounding the field of oncology. So stay tuned. Context for this next question is that we were actually going to release an episode tomorrow, but then Faison's voice is non-functioning. <laughs> but what the episode was about was um, Faison actually works at Ontario Shores right now, which is a geriatric and psychiatric hospital, essentially. Well, we see everything. You see everything, but he works in psychiatric. And, and I, I specialize in geriatrics at the moment. So the majority of that episode's like perspective was kind of based upon uh, his view of hospital practice. So how would you say like working specifically in oncology kind of differs from like your regular practice of say like general medicine? Definitely, you know, chemo is a large part of what we do. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel like in terms of like, I think the hardest part is trying to bridge the gap between, hey, cancer patients also have other issues too, such as psychiatric issues, definitely a lot of diabetes, heart disease, everything else. And it doesn't function as an isolated you know, issue. So it's trying to stay current with all the other um, comorbidities and f try to figure out how it plays into their cancer treatment because it does like you know things you don't think about like we do we use a lot of steroids in cancer therapy what if you have someone who has uncontrolled diabetes what does that mean for them and we still have to manage them. through the roof well exactly <laughs> it's like what do you do with uncontrolled diabetics is you still treat them like you would but you know it's trying to figure out what that means in terms of um, how it affects their cancer therapy and vice versa, how their cancer therapy affects their current comorbidities and how their comorbidities affects their cancer, like mental health. I mean, it's it's a very important, very vital area in our healthcare system that, you know, obviously we don't see enough attention being paid to. And it does affect patients' health enormously because if they can't take care of their mental health, how can they take care of their regular health? So we do kind of have to deal with that. Does that answer your question? I'm trying to think. No, like, no, that's yeah. perfect. Yeah. And I can, okay. I, can, I can relate to that because at the moment, what we're struggling with is in our geriatric population for psychiatry, we have a lot of dementia patients and a lot of Alzheimer's patients. And UTIs, um, or at least trying to diagnose a UTI in a geriatric patient is really hard. Um, if you take the urine culture, you're going to see whatever it is there that would normally show as a, as a UTI. But in the context of a geriatric patient, um, they don't have a UTI. The problem is with psychiatric patients... Asymptomatic bacteria. Check out that guideline. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is, though, is that with a geriatric patient who has dementia, how do you get them to tell you what their symptoms are? I think you hit that nail on the head so well. As our population's aging and you know our 
care, our healthcare is getting so much more complex. And you add in, hey, by the way, in addition to your Alzheimer's slash dementia, you have a cancer diagnosis in which you need to take a ton of new drugs. So as someone who doesn't really have that support at home and, you know, with a lot of the uh, cancer medications having very narrow therapeutic <laughs> index. How do we ensure patients aren't overdosing accidentally? That's always a huge area. Like a great example um, a couple of days ago was we're trying to address something as benign as like a low phosphate level. And we couldn't figure out why this patient have consistently low phosphate level. And turns out, you know, we were, I guess, um, pro providing patient with a, um, phosphate oral phosphate replacement but they just never filled it <laughs> so you know part of it is like doing detective work as practical as this rather sure. than oh my god we gave you a prescription we're assuming you're taking it so we're going to double that dose right. or we're digging a hole in a place where there's probably nothing wrong with and like that's a huge like i think area that is becoming harder and harder is managing our geriatric populations our ailing and older parents too, you Absolutely. know, like having them walk through a very complicated healthcare system and try to make sense of it. Even as a healthcare provider, like I find it confusing <laughs> if a loved one has to go through the system and, you know, I can commiserate with patients when they get frustrated. So I'm glad you brought up our healthcare system because I think Chris has a question about our healthcare system and some recent changes that have happened. Well, uh, I'm sure you've heard about the uh, Ontario Health merger that's going to be happening soon. We actually did an episode on it last weekend. Your face is priceless. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're a podcast, so we can't provide an image of this. But, <laughs> but did you have any opinions on the recent Cancer Care Ontario cuts and then the subsequent Cancer Care Ontario merger that's going to happen? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> Mostly because... I like a lot of our a lot of our patients depend on the lens or the uh, CCAC, the home care that they're you know that they're being taken care of home, and also like for those who don't know what Cancer Care Ontario does, it's our cancer agency, and not only do they provide you know like the drug formulary tables I'm talking I was talking about earlier, but really you know they help plan forward what you know, our provinces need in terms of cancer care and treatment. And there's a lot of work and like money that goes into ensuring that down the road, we have the resources available to potentially, if we were gonna be patients that we are appropriately being treated. So cuts to that, maybe acutely, we wouldn't see as big of an impact, but you know, down the line when we definitely gonna see more patients. What does that mean? Because we are trying to get our patients back to the community. Um, for those students who, you know, aren't aware of, you know, what it means to be hospitalized, being hospitalized, you know, in death for a long period of time. Sucks. It sucks for the patient because A, they can't get good sleep, B, the food, you know, I'm not to say like, the, but the food is not home cooked meals. And C, we know that long term, you know, hospitalization means increased risk of infections, you know, thrombo, like more clots if you don't, you know, move around. And we just find that patients prefer to be at home. <laughs> so like, um, 
you know, home care is very vital for patients to go home and to be safe at home and to get the treatments they required. So cuts to that means, you know, what does that mean? We're still trying to figure that out. And that's a large part of what I do on a day to day is trying to navigate all these changes. So, I mean, we're still trying to figure out what that means. And I think everyone should be aware that, you know, you might not think about it now, but it's going to affect you down the line. Yeah, I think like part of that episode that we released was that we ultimately aren't sure what the changes mean either, but like we definitely weren't fans of it. Because yeah. <laughs> even though it's not going to directly affect like the quality of care immediately, down the line when you just have less resources over time, like that can't be a good thing. Yeah. And our population is aging. That's the thing, right? And cancer is almost pretty much correlated with an aging population. Exactly. Right? The longer people live, the more predisposed they are to having cancer. Yeah, just by the fact that you're living longer, things it's like a car. It's like, you know, a car longer, there's things that start to break down and wear and tear. And, you know, the, our baby boomer population is getting to that point where, you know, they hit that magic number, they're retiring, they're not as many in the workforce, but, you know, there's the young ones like us who have to support, you know, not just their population, but thinking forward, we have to support ourselves down the line. So having the infrastructures there, having the policies in place, having all that resources there for us down the road, like, you know, we need to take care of ourselves too. Like we need to have a future for, you know, us to, you know, survive in or to thrive in, so. So your outlook's not that positive. Jury's still out, I'm trying to, I'm, as you say, we're still trying to figure out what that means long term. Um, I, you know, it's it's. I think right now it's just trying to figure out what that means, like even like short term wise. Like, what is there going to be any changes to services? Um, you know, stuff like that. I'm still. We're still trying to sort that out. <laughs> TBD. You know. So. I guess one thing that I really wanted to touch on because obviously your specialty is oncology, and earlier we were talking about like how when you think of cancer, even as like a pharmacy student, it's almost really intimidating because cancer as a disease is just typically scary, right? That's also part of the uh, reason that some students might not want to get into it. When I talk to like my friends in my class and I ask them like, oh, like which, which rotations did you want to have at the top of your list? Princess Market was not one of them. <laughs> like, like I'm so sad People now. don't put oncology what? like first. Like, I think oncology is like lowest rank. <laughs> yeah, like if oh, you look really? at all the UHN rotations, there'll That's be sad. like, you know, hundreds of people going into cardiology, but oncology just isn't popular. And I think part of the reason isn't- Intimidation. It's, yeah, it's, it's not just the intimidation though, it's also the fact that you're dealing with cancer as a disease. It's obviously like a burden on you. Like, do you find that when you're like talking with patients day to day, like does it affect you personally? Like, do you find that it gets hard on yourself? So actually it's, it's funny that you asked me that because my parents asked me that when I first went into oncology because they were concerned to like, how is this going to impact you mental health wise or emotionally? Does it not weigh on you? Um, to be honest, how I like to think about it and how I kind of went into oncology is thinking that I'm not Superman, you know, like we, we can't save everybody, but what I can do is make their lives a little bit better each day as they go through this very terrible diagnosis. And I think if you can come in with it with a mindset of, you know, I'm making this patient less nauseous, or I'm giving them an extra, you know, two days of feeling good. Why not? Actually, that's a huge, that's, 
even if you talk to patients, they feel the same way too. Is if you if you gave them the ability to go and enjoy their son or daughter's wedding, you know, because you're able to predict ahead of these side effects, or you give someone one less day of vomiting um, by you know being upfront about their treatment and medications that they should be taking regularly to prevent that. I think that if you have that mindset where you're not necessarily curing them, but you're making their quality of life just a little bit better, that actually helps me get through the day. And it actually patients and provider and other and their family do say the same thing. They're like, you made my day a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And I think like even during my rotation at Princess Margaret, it was nice that the patients kind of understood your role as a pharmacist and they kind of like they they don't have like these super unrealistic expectations. They knew that you were kind of there to like can like fix their uh, like side effects and that they were really happy with anything that you could yeah. do for them. Like they could tell that you were that you. You're cared. trying exactly, yeah. and uh, even as a student for Chris, you know he's left a lot of positive impact on a lot of our patients too. And I still get feedback about it. And you know, for students knowing that you know that is an area you can make a huge impact on. Like why not choose a rotation oncology because. I hate to say it, your future looks like, you know, the future is oncology, but really, you know, we see more and more patients with cancer treatment, uh, cancer diagnosis. So, you know, if you're talking about, you know, job prospects, pharmacy down the line, oncology pharmacy, there's a few of us, but there should be more of us because, and it doesn't have to be at, you know, a caliber of what I do, but even if you incorporate it into your day-to-day -day practice at your community or in other aspects, having that background or basic understanding of oncology can make things go a lot easier for patients. Oh, it's actually interesting you say that because I almost find that a lot of industry positions as well, um, are like oncology specializations, yes. right? So even when you're looking at the job market, if you're really worried about finding a job, it's almost like you should take those oncology rotations exactly. and really start specializing yourself in it because people are looking for more pharmacists that know what they're doing with oncology. Yeah, it's surprising. I, I was just having this conversation with my mom earlier because she was like, what do you want to do the rest of your life? Um, Wait, now? <laughs> yeah, I know, now? I'm like, well, like, you know, like the every five year checkup, like, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Um, but you're right, like a lot of the industry positions, like it's like oncology. And when I had to do that interview with pharmacy practice, they actually, they admitted to me saying like, it's hard to find you guys. <laughs> There's not many oncology pharmacists out there, but Just you know. Just for yeah. <laughs> They're all so, there. Yeah, so you can, or, or but like just you know I mean it's an area that is not tapped into and I think that you know you know hint hint if you're looking for a job after graduation it's worth having you know an oncology rotation under your belt if you're applying for those oncology positions so you know at least the employers know that you know what you're getting yourself into. Earlier you touched on how you've been in the practice for a long time and you manage your own expectations and that's why you're able to stay in oncology practice for so long. Would you agree that there is like some high turnover at like Princess Margaret or other oncology hospitals? Like, and do you find that part of the reason for the high turnover is because of the field of practice you're working in? Actually, 
funny enough, no. Most oncology pharmacists I know who either went in right after school or from school and knowing they wanted to do oncology or actually had a, this is their quote unquote second pharmacy career. Most of them are diehard oncology pharmacists. Like, like they, they see the need and they see that by leaving it could potentially mean like, you know, less oncology pharmacists out there treating patients. So a lot of them actually stay in oncology. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously turnover will happen anywhere. And like, I think it's more to do with like just life happening. And, you know, pharmacy itself as, you know, a career, there's so many different things you can try and do. And it's encouraged that you try different things and kind of expand your horizons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely don't think the disease area is a contributing factor to any turnover. Because most of them, I feel like they actually, most of the oncology farmers I know stay within it. Even if they don't, they want to get back into it. You're really selling me on oncology, by the way. Do it. You are. Do it. I, I didn't realize how few of us, but how big a market there is. People are literally not. Because I was like, like oh, yes. turn back time. You don't have to. You just, just no, 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 take no. I know, I know. But it's just, it's just so interesting. Like, because, like I said, when you're in school, it's so intimidating. Yeah. And it's like, do I really want to get into oncology or like when I do it, like, I don't know anything, but now that you're like talking to me, but it's okay to not know anything. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I like coming out of school, definitely oncology was bottom of my list, (laughs) (laughs) even though I've done rotations, but actually I'm happy that I did go into it because otherwise I don't think I would have like thought about it. But once you're in it, you're like, Oh, there, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of new drug development you know, in the pipelines for cancer treatment. So why not be part of this like, you know, amazing area? I think even while I was working at Princess Margaret, one of the things that I kept telling Fizan and other people that I was talking about like my my rotation and why I enjoyed it so much was you're literally on the bleeding edge of research in, in regards to pharmaceuticals and just like regular oncology practice. It was so interesting to see all the different things that were being done and like all the different papers that were being released at Princess Margaret. And then like when we got to, when I got to shout out the clinical trials pharmacist and seeing like all the different research that's done at the hospital directly, it was, it was amazing. <laughs> like, like you don't get to see that anywhere else. Yeah. So if you're listening and you're in your third year, <laughs> we have rotations available at PM. But as Chris said, you know, we're, I'm very lucky to be in a hospital, like very lucky to be at Princess Margaret because we are literally at the leading edge of like research and research that's transitioned to like actual standard of care. And like one great example I always like to kind of allude to is when I first started like um, the immune checkpoint inhibitors, like the pembrolizumab, the ipi, uh, lumumab and nevo were literally just like phase one or two trials. And during my time here, I've seen it go from like like literally early stage trials to being like life-saving standard of care like therapy for many different types of patients. So exciting to be part of that kind of, you know, like piece of history, I call it. In the final section of the podcast, we're going to be talking about work-life balance and we're going to talk about how Melissa's experience in oncology actually helped her in community as well. I don't think we had the time yet to talk about like your community practice because you have experience in community. You opened your own pharmacy for a while and you've obviously practiced in community before. Um, You mentioned that your experience in community has helped you in your ambulatory practice and now you want to kind of transition and give your 
oncology knowledge back to the community pharmacy team <laughs> or community. Yeah. Um, so how would you, um, like what kind of like advice or what kind of programs are you looking to do to make it so that community oncology is a little bit more fleshed out or? I think um, educate, I like to always go back to education in terms of being the best way to kind of deliver that you know, stand, like that care to patients. We can't, I can't help everybody, but I can certainly help other pharmacists kind of get up to education. So I know there are um, CEs as part of your, uh, your licensing requirements, to, you know. Actually, it's not. Well, okay, but I like to think <laughs> In so. In America it is, but, but you know, here it's you like, have to have self-directed learning performance. Yeah, yeah, like whatever that is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Go to a conference a year, basically. Exactly. So conferences would be a great like opportunity going to, you know, trying to figure out which conference to go to is always hardest. There's so many different conferences. Have you ever thought of presenting at like OPA or, C or like a CPA? I would love to um, present at OPA, CPA. <laughs> I have to finish the current presentations <laughs> Just first. Just finish other conference work. I gotta finish first. the other conference work first, but um, it's definitely like doing C, like writing CEs. Um, sure. I'm thinking more like reaching out, even like through podcasts, webinars. You know, I feel like how millennia. I'm a millennial too. <laughs> but how like the new generation of pharmacists are learning, it's really evolved from even the last five years. I don't have a Twitter. I don't understand how to use Twitter, but now I'm under, but I've been told that Twitter is a great medium for communicating education. It's really strange you mentioned that because it's absolutely true. It feels like the entire faculty is on Twitter. Yes, oh, yeah. yes. Yeah, every, I, I, every. I was asked like, can you tweet something? I'm like, I don't know how to tweet. <laughs> Like the ID physicians I worked with at my rotation, they were using Twitter to like talk to other doctors. And I was like, what's going on? Like, how is this, is this an official like message board? I know, but even like late breaking news, like a lot of like big organizations are using Twitter to get that out versus wait to the next edition of blah, 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 being right. published. So I'm trying to figure out ways to kind of get that information out to the community as easily digestible. That's always a hard part as possible. So whether it's going to conferences, tweeting, if I have to learn how to tweet. Um, I don't think Instagram Instagram is has a place right now. You with like that. take a picture of an IV bag. It's like, this is the new drug. Yeah, I was like, beware <laughs> this color. So I think that's always a hard part, you know, trying to make like, it digestible and available to the public. Well, and also as like, you know, a pharmacist who's trying to keep up with, you know, education. It's like, where do I find the time and the day to do it? You know, like, Podcasts actually, I was going to say, you know driving. what, podcasts are probably the way of the future because I know when I take the subway, I have to listen to a podcast because that's how I'm going to not realize it's taking me twice as long to get home. <laughs> um, but yeah, like podcasts may be a way of the future. And I feel like there actually are already so many different clinical based pharmacy podcasts like they're, they're they're definitely already my first one I've heard. <laughs> well we're not clinical we're yeah. more but like still like, i've never casual. heard of pharmacy yeah there's a couple good ones out there we can talk about them not on not on record but yeah there definitely are a lot out there and i find like it's super convenient even while i was driving here i was listening to one of them and then um you, know, you learn more about <laughs> sorry <yeah. laughs> learn more about hypertension i guess oh my god <laughs> I was like, yo, what, what did I listen to? I was listening to, what was it? True Crime? 
Oh, those are always good too. Yeah. yeah true crime, any yeah. of the mystery horror ones. Mystery yeah. horror Oof. ones. But yeah, no, it's hard. It's hard to figure out what to like, how to keep up with everything mm -hmm. and like not just be like one sided in terms of, you know, your personality. My mom called me boring once. Oh, no. <laughs> it's okay. But yeah, it's, it's, I think it's hard. It's, it's definitely like as a practicing pharmacist, like once you're out of school, you know, there's no one there to tell you what to learn, how to learn, you know, when you should brush up your skills. And it's on us to keep up with it, but it's trying to figure out, you know, I only have 24 hours in a day, how, like I work, you know, you work probably eight to 10 hours a day and you need to sleep for another eight to 10 hours. So how do I make those available hours, you know, meaningful? So it's always hard. Work, there's no such thing as work-life balance. I'm gonna <laughs> say that. <laughs> How do you balance your work-life balance right now, Fizans, as a hustle pharmacist? I would say, so right now I have the flexibility because I'm working part-time in two places and I've chosen this month to take Thursdays off, but that's just like for my own sanity. And to and because during the holiday season, I was working every day except for Sundays and Christmas day. Oh so I was like, I need to like take some time off. Um, that's my work-life balance is, is realizing when I've worked too much, I need to take some days off in the week to kind of recalibrate. There's other like chores and other stuff that needs to be done. After work, when I come home, I just turn everything clinical off. It doesn't mean I'm not a pharmacist anymore. Someone asks you about the drug, you're just like, yeah, take it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I try to leave work at, at work. Yeah. And when I'm home, I'm home. But like for example, I'm, I'm taking the opioid use uh, treatment course from CAMH right now. So I'm kind of doing that every now and then, um, doing the course of like setting aside one hour every two, three days to just go through it. But I try to do one thing at a time rather than like, let's read five papers at once um, because I need, to, I need to have a life. <laughs> Fair enough. But it's hard, you're, you're right, it is hard. Um, there's no perfect answer to it. You can make schedules all you want, but they'll never work out. Word of advice there, as I said, there's no, but as you're saying in terms of work-life balance and find, striking the balance between like staying current, staying like, you know, competitive in a in, in pharmacy, like if you're ever looking for other jobs, it's, it's hard. You try to make plans, but sometimes plan falls through. I feel like at the end of the day, you got to take care of yourself, you know, like whether it means like, you know, after five or after whatever time, whatever time you get off of work, no more talk about pharmacy, go get a hobby, you know, run a mile, take your dog out for a walk, clean your house. That's very important. That's just, house. that's just as important as like reading five papers or, you know, taking a course. And I think it's being able to strike a balance, um, and, you know, kind of maintaining your sanity that way and, and taking the pressure off yourself to constantly go, go, go. Sometimes you just need downtime to just regroup and, you know, have quiet time to yourself. I think a lot of new graduates, I guess maybe the easiest job or the job that they're most comfortable with is community pharmacy. But we're kind of scared of getting right into community pharmacy because we feel like after we get settled in community, it's hard to transition out of it. Do you agree that it's harder to transition like do you think it's like the best time to get a hostel pharmacy job is right out of graduation i think traditionally it is obviously easier out of school especially like a lot of hospital jobs require residency and you know getting into residency probably is easier when you're coming out of school than you know later but it can be done like i've seen people who've done residencies you know after a couple years after school um so like in the traditional sense it would be 
easier because the fact that the requirements are laid there in front of you. But not to say that, you know, I have a lot of other colleagues who didn't go that traditional route and found themselves in hospital through, you know, happy coincidences. So like maybe like I had some who started off working, loved like retail and not like, oh, you know, I didn't know what to do. I just do retail. It's like, no, I'm passionate about retail and then got involved in, you know, like got involved in some special projects in, in oncology or mental health and found their way actually like into hospital through that means. I think the hardest part for students or people, or I think pharmacists like who graduated is ha having the initiative to, to do, to take the practice to another level, whether it's going to hospital or consulting or industry. It's like trying to find, you know, the will to, after long days of work, to study more, to do that certification, get that geriatric certification. Apply projects in your practice. Do your projects. Like, you know, like I'm just, you know, I spent like half the day, you know, doing this presentation or rereading like multiple articles, but finding that um, drive to do more so then you can open up your, your career horizons. I think that's the hardest. If you were working in the community and you wanted to further your career into another field, you have to put the work in. And yeah. like you can't just be stagnant in what you're doing and expect a job to fall at your no. footsteps. It's actually like a lot harder when you like have to figure out what your next steps are. Cause it's not mm -hmm. very clear. Like, you know, obviously after school, like they always push residency, but residency is not for everybody. And obviously there's not enough spots for residency. So you know, like, what do you do in that situation? There's like, obviously like certifications, things you can get involved with. In. Those are things are self-initiated and really, you know, it has to be done on your time, you know, in a way. So it's trying to fit that in. And that's, I find even a struggle for myself um, to do, but imagine having to do it with like other responsibilities. But if you want to stay, if you want to have an opportunity to leave your current you know, not career, but learn, current area, you do have to put that time and- um, Go to conferences, make go friends. To con exactly, go to conferences, make friends. And a lot of happy coincidence happens that way when you take yourself out of your comfort zone and like do something different, so. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's like it's like this joke. There's this guy that's that prays to God every day and he's like, please like make me win the lottery, right? And like every day he's praying, every day he's praying, like months go by, he still hasn't won. And then like one day he gets like upset. He's like, I've been praying every day. Like I want to win the lottery and you haven't done anything. And like, what, like what, what's wrong? Like what's happening, right? And then he hears this like booming voice come from like the heavens. And it's like, well, first you have to buy the ticket. <laughs> first step <laughs> right? is you actually Like you have to do something first. Like you have to put in the initiative. You, yeah. you can't just expect something to happen out of nothing, right? Yeah, and definitely like you have to put yourself out there and you're gonna get hurt. I mean, I don't want to, you know, sugarcoat and say everything's going to be okay. You know, a lot of trial and error has to occur. Thing, you know, you really just have to put yourself out there, reach out to contacts you don't think, you know, are contacts, but might as well. I always say, you know, I always say, it's like, what's the worst they can do? Like, you know, say no, right? And they're not gonna slap and you. And then you can spread the word and then we'll tell other employers to also say no. Yeah, I really, yeah, no, but, but as I always say, like, what's the worst they're gonna do? Say no to you, right. you know? So I think that's like going in with a mindset, really nothing to lose at that point. No one's gonna fault you for asking a question, like, And if why you're truly not? passionate about it, you need to show that passion. Exactly, right? so. no one can, no one knows unless you actually put yourself out there. Like a great example of what I'm doing is I'm putting myself out there to explore other opportunities sure. that way. So.
No, that's, I think that's great advice. Yeah. I think it's reassuring to hear that from you because like sometimes we give that type of advice on the podcast, but some I feel like we don't have the authority to almost give it out sometimes because like <laughs> we're like okay, I'm a, I'm still I'm a student and Faison just graduated, so like so I'm it feels. Old. <laughs> no, I'm just saying you've been working in your practice for yeah. like seven eight years now. Like it's better to hear it from you than it is to hear it from us. Yeah, it's somewhat more reassuring knowing that I've gone through all the motions <laughs> of being burned. Um, but yeah, you know I. There's no like, it doesn't hurt. I actually did want to ask you about the like the consulting work I guess that you do for other hospitals because I know like while you were, even um, while I was a student there, you were talking about how like other hospitals would ask you questions either through email or about like setting up their own kind of clinics like. Like, what does that look like? What does consulting work look like in a, as a hospital pharmacist? Uh, depends on how you, as you, how you make of it. There's no, like, I mean, I'm very new to it. Um, there's no, like, right or wrong way of doing it. As long as you check your employment agreement and you don't, you know, cross any boundaries that way. But, uh, like, we do get a lot of questions. Like, you start to as you practice longer, you start to develop a niche area and people start to recognize that. So they're just gonna ask you informally. And then you realize, you know, maybe the question was asked like five times by five different hospitals and you start to kind of, you know, figure out where the needs are and, you know, really create um, your own like way of kind of dealing with those needs. Some people do it for profit, some do people do it on a voluntarily basis, you know, they do it for free. Um, but I'm still trying to figure out like what that means and how that kind of ties into my day to day. Cause really what people are asking you for, you know, what you've experienced during your like regular employment. Um, but I'm trying to figure out what that translates to in terms of consulting. Cause I, you know, I intend to continue working cause I really find a lot of, I don't want to leave like hospital practice fully because I see a lot of benefit of staying like in practice to keep up with my work elsewhere but some people do like completely leave like hospital practice and I would imagine in oncology like once you leave it'll be like six months and you're out, you're outdated I feel <laughs> a couple months yeah yeah I, was like, <laughs> I want to say yeah it is actually kind of true because Oncology changes so frequently, like so much. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I like to, I don't know what that, I don't know where it's going to lead me. I, it's literally in my infancy. Is there one myth that you would like to debunk? Uh, and we kind of, I guess we went over this about oncology or the field of oncology or pharmacists and oncology. Uh, well, I think I talked about it earlier is, you know, People, even my parents were afraid of my mental health working on oncology and how it would impact me. And to be honest, like if you walk in with a frame of mind that you're gonna have, you're gonna make even the most smallest change or smallest benefit to the patient, improvement in quality of life, it really helps kind of like, you know, with your practice that it's not gonna wear you down over the years. Because to be quite honest, year eight into it, I feel a lot better than I was in year one or one to five. Like a great example is, hey sir, like, you know, a cycle of year, if you take it five times a day versus fan beer, you take it once a day. People actually care. People thank you for that. And it seems like the most insignificant change, but it's, it makes the biggest difference. Or you're getting something covered under, you know, your insurance versus having to pay for it out of pocket. Those are things that make 
you know, make patients really value a pharmacist. And that's how relationships develop into like, you know, like while you help me reduce the pill burden I'm taking, it really means a lot to me. Or side effects of, you know, maybe too much blood pressure medication. I'm gonna reduce it a little bit. And the patient's like, I've had one, one of my nurse practitioners told me that small intervention I made of telling her, I think, you know, this patient has too much blood pressure medication on board. That's why they're complaining of feeling fatigue. You know, they're just no quality of life. And, you know, we titrated the patient down, took a little bit, but at the end of the day, the patient was like, I'm so thankful. I have so much more energy now. I can be able to do what I want to do and not be feeling like I'm exhausted all the time. So like having these little kind of minor, like minor changes in patients' lives, that's what gets me through the day. So people shouldn't be afraid of going into oncology because it's depressing. You know, you have to go into it thinking, I'm not going to save the world, but a small, you know, a small save or a small adjustment can really make a person's day. So. I think that's like one big caveat for any new practitioners who are thinking of going into oncology or are and currently in oncology and really feeling like, you know, you can't save anybody, you know, it's, a, it's terrible, it's cancer. I'm like, no, what you do makes someone's life better. That's what I care about. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Melissa. If any of our listeners want to learn more about oncology or learn about what Melissa does as well, she has an article, like she mentioned earlier, in the Pharmacy Practice and Business uh, magazine. And we'll link that in the podcast description and on our website, offthescriptshow.com. You know, with oncology being such a large area with not very many pharmacists, I think people should consider it. You know, I think it's, it's the way of the future. <laughs> yeah. So I guess what we learned today is oncology isn't so scary, guys. It's not. It's really not. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Melissa. Thank you. Off the Script is produced by Tom Fung, Faison Baig, and Chris Tse. Quality control is done by Stephen Guan. Mixing and editing is done by Chris Tse. Off the Script is a podcast focused on education and entertainment. However, we are not a replacement for real medical advice. Please see your local healthcare professional if you have any questions about your own personal health. Thank you to Sean Singh for creating our introductory music, and thank you to Chill Hot Music for allowing us to use their music in our intermission and ending. You can find more great songs at chillhop.com slash listen. Mm-hmm.